This morning, always good to be here. Quick shout out to my family up in the upper left up here. Uh, so good to see all of you. Uh, Hallie, uh, who knew we had that many kids? Oh my gosh. Um, that's a lot. Uh, there could have been maybe some better planning uh, on that piece, but delightful to see all of you up there and really good to be here as always. I'm always appreciative of Kevin's invitation to be part of the journey with you here and where you're headed and especially this series about doing whatever it takes to follow Jesus in this world and awake consistent with who Jesus was and still is as our risen Lord. And I know when Kevin introduced the fact that I would be speaking this week, he mentioned that I probably should handle this topic about learning to love like Jesus because there's a lot I need to learn about love. So I called him out on that this week with a text to which he promptly texted back, Peter, you should think about learning how to turn the other cheek. To which I told him, Kevin, I'm much more of an Old Testament eye for an eye guy myself. (laughs) And while I haven't yet figured out the exact right kingdom revenge I would like to offer upon Kevin, I am wildly open to your suggestions. So at any point, if you want to email me at pcapster at bethel.edu, just make sure you copy Kevin at kevin.meyer at yzetterfree.org. I find the anticipation of revenge is far sweeter than the actual revenge. So let's just kind of develop that range of possibilities. It is uh, good. I, this topic about loving like Jesus is um, altogether too simple and altogether too complex. It was uh, interesting to dive into it myself a bit this week as we look at the topic that Kevin left off with last week in the Gospel of John chapter 4, in which we find Jesus winding his way into Samaria. And the topic this week will be Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman. And how love crossed all sorts of social boundaries and went into all kinds of unacceptable places according to the standards of the age to find a woman there who desperately and deeply needed the wholeness that God might offer. And so with that, we'll head that direction this morning. I'd like to pray as we begin and then we'll read the text. It's a long text, but we'll sort our way through it and jump in for the morning. So let's pray together as we get started. God, for the anointing of your spirit upon us as a people, I ask that we would increasingly be empowered to shine your light in this world, the heartbeat of which is simply love. Anchor us this morning in the crazy complexity of our day and of our world, in the wonder of your kingdom, so that we may participate in this beautiful story that you've called us into in increasing ways. Pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus and by the power of his spirit. Amen. Well, as we get into the text, I believe it's going to be up on the screen. Uh, I think the tradition here is, from what I understand, that we stand as we read the text. Do I have that right? In terms of, so, all right, so we'll be standing for quite some time. Go ahead and uh, stand. And uh, I'll use my uh, 2080 now eyesight to see if I can follow along on the screen up here. But this is from the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter, where soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. Jesus was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if only you knew the gift God has for you and who you who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir... You don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? 
And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I will give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet, so tell me why it is that you, Jews, insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped. And Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one who you worship, and we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews, but the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus said to her, I am the Messiah. Maybe seated, we can dive into this. If you're like me, when you read this passage, it feels like there are upwards of a dozen questions that we could address, a dozen different directions we could go. I read this passage and thought uh, the woman from the Samaritan well was perhaps semantically correct when she answered Jesus' question about not having a husband, but Jesus called her out and the spirit of her answer was not correct, that we could talk about how so often we go those directions in life. We could talk about what it means to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Quite frankly, I don't have any idea (laughs) what that passage means. I hope I'm doing it, but I don't know. We could talk about what salvation is and the eternal life that bubbles up inside and how that comes from the Jews. We could talk about how the woman identifies Jacob as a forefather, even though she is a half-Jew, as we'll see in just a moment. Talk about Jesus referring himself as living water and the analogies of that. Again, I don't know about you if you've grown up with the biblical text. I sort of assumed, based on the 15 passages of Scripture that I memorized when I was 10 years old, that I had a lockdown on 100% of the text. I was, I was totally in, I had it all, and what I've realized that a recent check, I think I'm up to about 1.2% of understanding of the text. Now, in fairness, that's 1.1% more than Kevin, and so that's a... <laughs> See, I could live in this Old Testament stuff for quite some time. Um, I had that thought come to me during worship, so I was clearly inspired uh, on that. <laughs> The text is so fun. There are many different ways we could go with this and literally spend years in this passage of scripture for all the places it might take us. But for the purposes of this morning, there is a bigger picture at play here that does have to do with the love of God and how it crosses social boundaries. And so in kind of two short parts and a final part as well, we'll look a little bit about just getting behind the scenes. If we were in that Samaritan place some 2,000 years ago, how might we have experienced where Jesus was and with whom he was speaking and how utterly scandalous that might have been? So talk about that first. 
After that, we'll try to get a clear-eyed view of the love that was driving Jesus in those moments and how it is a kingdom love that is perhaps different from the 21st century American version of inclusivity, embrace, and approval love of our culture. Today, what is kingdom love as it crosses all the social boundaries? And then a final point we'll make is how do we get anchored maybe in this kind of love of the Father? I guess it's a three-point sermon. It doesn't it doesn't rhyme, um, and I don't have uh, it doesn't all start with the same letter. So I'm sure you can't follow along because that's the case. But I'll try to work through those three movements first. The fact that Jesus is willing to share company with the Samaritan woman. It's a world in which the religious leaders of the day would have absolutely never crossed paths with this woman. The religious establishment would have shunned her as they shunned the gnome in Terry's poem. They would not have belonged, the Samaritans, so said the religious leaders of the day. They would not have been welcome in their presence. For Samaria, if we could go back in that time, was a region, as I referenced, filled with half-Jews. And that might not sound like a big deal to us, but they were just half the blood descendants of Abraham, which meant they had mixed themselves with other uh, other religions and other races. And the one thing the Jews were to never do was to mix themselves with other races and other religions, and Samaria was a place filled with that. They sort of were a living representation of a generational depravity. Many generations of intermarrying, many generations of not being fully Jew. They were half-breeds, half-Jews. The pious Jews of the day hated them. I I suppose they were muggles of some kind. Uh, And the pious Jews would have been from the house of Slytherin, the pure-blood Jews. And I always love using a Harry Potter reference in a Christian circle because it completely divides the church. Um, half of the people laugh and they're not sure if they can laugh. And half the people think, can you read Harry Potter? And now we have another sermon ahead of us. So I'll just let you stew on that one. <laughs> Remember, I only know 1.2% of the text anyway. But what makes matters worse for the pious Jews is that the Samaritans were not only half-bred muggles, they often had the temerity, if not the outright guts, to thumb their nose at the pious Jews of the day. They would stand and they would arrogantly proclaim that the Jews are just all these pious, they don't have any idea about the world, and so these groups hated each other. The Jews and the Samaritans were constantly at odds. No self-respecting Jew cared about any Samaritan or their well-being at all. And certainly no respected religious leader would find themselves in the company of some of these half-breeds. So severe was the desire to stay away from the Samaritans that some have suggested that if you were a Jewish leader or even a Jewish person in that day and you had to travel from Jerusalem, maybe over here, to the northwest of Israel and your fastest route was to take you through Samaria... You would absolutely not take that route. You would walk around the edges of Samaria, not even wanting to put your foot on some of that corrupted, sullied soil of the Samaritans, even if it took you several extra days to get to where you were going. To find yourself in Samaria is not a good place to be. I suppose it's a little bit like traveling to Chicago through Iowa just to avoid Wisconsin and Packerland. <laughs> Very understandable reasons. But on top of that, If Jesus is going to cross the boundary into Samaria, the very least that he can do is find the most respected people of the day. Find people with power or prestige or titles, at least somewhat respected in this den of iniquity. 
He's a rabbi and no self-respecting teacher would even go to Samaria. But if they did, by all means, find other teachers that could be respected like you. We live in a culture right now where success gravitates towards success. Have you ever been looked past by a person that has any measure of power or title or authority? Walking in the door, maybe you're in a social gathering and somebody walks in and they're shaking your hand while they're looking to the people that they really want to be with. People like them of title. The commoners like us don't belong. Self-respecting religious leader should certainly, if he's going to find himself in the sullied den of iniquity, should find a place where other people are like him because success breeds success. If we even rub shoulders with a person of power, we immediately throw it up on Instagram, don't we? And think, that's who I want to be with. Those are the people that are like, those are the targets towards which I am aiming. If I could just have that. But Jesus, somehow he always seems to do, avoids the tables of power and respect and heads to those who have been shunned. To those who have no hope. To those of the past. To the least and to the lost. And for Jesus, when he does these things, it is not a little sidebar from his regular life. It's not a little ministry that he does on the side. It's central to his understanding of who he is and who needs him in this world. He says these words that I have not come for the healthy. I've come for the sick. For the sick need a savior. And the, and the values of Jesus, so different than the values of that day, about who matters and who belongs and to where we might go. To a woman with five failed marriages in Samaria. Might not ever darken the doors of a church and Jesus goes to her. Living with a person who is not even her husband, a sixth man, would have made the religious leaders uncomfortable in that day. It certainly, if I'm honest, makes me feel uncomfortable. But there's something in that that might just teach us something about the relentless, passionate, pursuing love of God that maybe doesn't see the same kinds of social boundaries and categories that we might see, that doesn't neatly label people and noun them for who they are and who they will ever be, but maybe sees something different. For his ministry of moving towards the least and the lost was not just something authorized by the church to do maybe on a different kind of day than what we do on Sundays. His central heart (laughs) is to go towards the least and the lost. Which I guess makes sense if we understand the love of God, at least from a biblical standpoint. Because in the text, God is not described as somebody who is loving, though he is. He's not described as having love as a dimension of his character, though it certainly is. And love is not just an expression of God's way of life, though it is that as well. John makes it very clear in his first letter in the fourth chapter. He says this, God is love. God is love. It's the one characteristic in the text that speaks to the personhood of God. All of the other characteristics are ways in which we experience God. This is the one characteristic that is the very personhood of God. It is love. So central is love to the heart of God and to his personhood that John follows up with this stark warning in the fourth chapter of that book. He says this, if you don't know love, anybody know the passage? You don't actually know God. 
If you don't know love, you don't actually know God. In fact, you can have all the theology in the world. Kapsner. You could actually know 100% of the biblical text start to finish and all the various views on every possible passage of scripture and not know God. Not even the first jot or tittle about who God is. You could have it all dialed in, but without love and your clanging gong, an empty empty gong and a clanging cymbal, though you even speak with the tongues of men and angels. I don't know what to do with that passage entirely. But if we read it on its merits, if we read it what's there, it is saying that it isn't theology that allows us to know God. It isn't the Bible that allows us to know God. As important as those things are, saying that it is only those who love, who know God. And yet in the circles in which I run and in the churches in which I find myself and the places where I am and teaching through Christian ministries and practical theology and all of these places, what I primarily see is the categories for those who are able to lead the churches are those who are most theologically astute. I don't see any elder qualifications about do you know what the love of God is? Do you, do you know how it tastes? Do you know what it means to be moving the way God moves in this world? Don't hear me wrong, I'm not suggesting an either-or. Theology and Bible is important, I hope it is. <laughs> Otherwise, I wasted a hood out of my life. <sighs> but it's very possible to know all the theology in the world and not know God. Do you know that I travel in circles with atheist biblical scholars? It happens all the time. You want to know God? You want to be a shepherd of his people? You really want to be a shepherd of his people? Learn how to love, for God is... Love And that kind of love crashes through any kind of false social boundaries and categories that we might put up in terms of who deserves it and who doesn't. And Jesus found himself in a land where no other self-respecting pious Jew would go, in a woman where no self-respecting pious Jew would have a conversation with. There we find God, the very representation of God on earth. That's challenging to me, but it's consistent with the heart of God, we see him showing up in the Old Testament, right? Where Hagar is cast out of the home of Abraham and she's left on her own with no future and no hope. And where does God go? He goes to this cast aside woman. It's the first woman that God speaks to in the text is somebody who's outside of the Abrahamic community. And that's where Jesus finds himself as well. I think there's a lot more that we could say about this. But I don't think heaven is very far off when he says, you know, Peter, um, maybe you could learn how to love. I've been a Christian since I was six. And I'm really grateful for all of the experience of that time. I think I tasted the love of the kingdom when I was about 34. And I think from that place, I actually began to love God in my mid-30s. It was no longer a game to be played. It was no longer a social thing that I attended. It was no longer a place to find friends. It was some kind of kingdom that transcended all of this time and space and somehow reaches out in ways that I didn't even know existed. For love is the gossamer thread of the kingdom. It is the hope of the world. And I think as I say these things, and I thought about this this past week, about learning to love like Jesus and crossing social boundaries... So moving to the second part of this, I think for some of us, and I know myself included, it raises a very understandable question. You know, when we talk about crossing social boundaries and categories, it can get swept up into all of the crazy political stuff of the day. (laughs) Thank the Lord I don't see Democrats or Republicans in the biblical text. There is a kingdom, 
in the text. And the Republicans and the Democrats do not have the final say on either side of that kingdom. There's a kingdom of Jesus. And what does it mean to live life like him? Because I think when we talk about crossing these boundaries and loving the outcasts and the unacceptable, there feels like maybe for some among us, for some very understandable reasons, that, Gapsner, if you say those things, aren't we risking going down some path of social gospel liberalism where everything gets watered down and there are no standards and we're in some humanistic, philanthropic endeavor to just help people absent of God? Well, maybe you don't say that, but something along those lines. (laughs) I'd rather just build a tower of Babel to the heavens and outright defy God than go down that slippery slope, Kapsner. I suppose you might even ask me to love somebody who's in a same-gender relationship now. I'm sure nobody's asking that question these days, right? It's a lot of questions to ask, and I get it. But I think what we can say is that to state that God is love and that Jesus has a willingness to minister to the least and to the lost does not mean that we're some uh, on some icy slope to Hades. So I'll try to explain this a little bit more to get a clear-eyed view of what kingdom love is in the biblical text and how it's actually quite different than the spirit of the age, where we see tolerance and approval masquerading as something called love when it isn't. For the way love is often used, I would suggest, in 2019 America has become synonymous with words like, oh, I don't know, who am I to judge? If that person is finding happiness, what should I possibly say about that? If that works for you, that works for you. If those are your passions and choices, uh, who am I to say, why don't we just live and let live? Anybody else familiar with sort of the spirit of the age besides me? (laughs) Love has become an inclusive embrace of all things. Love has become an inclusive embrace of all things, of all ways in life. And, you know, I've explored this with my classes of both young people who are coming out of our best and brightest evangelicals in our city today, and I also explore it with older adults. I get to teach this whole range of students, and we talk about these things, about how the common understanding of love has been equated towards things like embrace and inclusivity and approval and all of these words. And I ask them, so what do you think is driving that? And almost to a student, a common pattern emerges as to why we find ourselves in this place of somewhat confusion in 2019. And they say things like this, you know, Captain, we are really weary of the heavy handed dogmatic approach to faith that we grew up with in the churches and then the pervasive hypocrisy that they see in church leadership behind the scenes. That's what they say. Both Protestant and Catholic figures claiming to be authoritative, exhorting them to live in certain ways, creating a fear of God if they don't live in those ways, only to find out behind the scenes that what's going on would include the ravages of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church and the abuse of power in the Protestant Church, the most recent example being Bill Hybels in Willow Creek. That's what they see. I don't know if I can say these things from the pulpit, but that's, that, that's what they see. That's where people are living these days. And so they say, why don't you, church, take the log out of your own eye before you dare look at a speck in mine? Oh, what does it hurt what I am doing? Why don't you just live and let live? Isn't love of the kingdom just an embrace of all things? Quit judging everyone, they say. 
Now, parenthetically, just to help you, uh, maybe moving forward with that statement, do not judge, and I think I've said this from the pulpit again uh, before, but it bears mentioning again, uh, that's what I get most often from my students is like, don't judge, stop judging, judge, 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 you know, and it's, and, and so we talk about that, and, and then I say, you know, you guys, I, I hope that I am the most judgmental person that you will ever meet, <laughs> and that totally sucks the air out of the room. And then I say, and I also hope I'm the least judgmental person that you'll ever meet. And then we talk about it. Because when Jesus says in that Matthew text, do not judge, there's a certain word within the Greek language to which he's referring about a kind of judgment in the text that we are to avoid. And the judgment Jesus is talking about in the biblical text there is the judgment of condemnation. And what I mean by that, a a judgment of condemnation is to say to somebody, you are a sinner, that's who you are, that's forever who you will be, there is no hope or no future for you. And Jesus says, don't you dare ever judge somebody in that way, because in my kingdom there is always hope and always future, and that's why I'm in Samaria. Okay, But there's another form of judgment in the text that we are all called to as believers. It's a very different Greek word. It's the judgment of discernment. It's the judgment of that which is good and that which is evil, to try to discern the best we can the realities within God's kingdom that are true and right and good and are meant for our wholeness. Not meant to prove something about God as if God is insecure. (laughs) Gotta give you glory, God! Like As if God's like, you know what? I just didn't get enough glory today. I'm feeling a little insecure. (laughs) Now, he gives us this for our wholeness, and we'll say more about that. In a minute, I hope you, I hope we can become the most judgmental and the least judgmental people possible, able to discern the realities of the kingdom that are good for our wholeness while never suggesting to anyone that they are outside of the hope of the kingdom, no matter how far you go. And so we talk about that in class and the pendulum swing, and in doing so, and it makes sense when there's this pendulum swing away from the dogmatic, sort of heavy-handed approach with some of the hypocrisy behind the scenes, it becomes really understandable about this pendulum swing then over here, where love becomes approval and tolerance and these sorts of things. And so, uh, of all things, we go to the Bible (laughs) and explore the word love from the biblical text and try to unwed ourselves from some of the cultural ideas of it. And we'll put up on the screen now, uh, Sarah and I worked together on some slides for the word for love in the biblical text in the Hebrew is the word ahava. And as we go through this, just catch how different this whole sort of language of the text is from the culture of the day. For ahava means that God and love, it delights. It is amiable. It's a passionate lover. Ahava implies an ardent and vehement inclination of the mind and a tenderness of affection at the same time. Vehement inclination of the mind and a tenderness of affection at the same time. I once heard Brennan Manning say, theologically, God has to love you, but do you know that he likes you? Again, my young people are all day long trying to just find any sense of being liked, just any sense of, does somebody see me? And so they post pictures on social media hoping to get that thumbs up or that quick heart or that kind of affirmation that comes. Not feeling God all day long sees you. And he actually likes you. It's a perpetual little thumbs up on (laughs) Facebook. So the love of the Old Testament, however we think of the love of God, he is passionately inclined to enjoy us. 
This is the love of God. In the New Testament, we combine it with this. One of the common words in the New Testament is that of agape. You may know it. It is a self-sacrificing love, willing to give the fullness of oneself for the sake of the preservation, healing, or wholeness of another. Again, willing to give the fullness of oneself for the sake of the preservation, healing, and wholeness of another. And that actually begins to make sense when you put these two concepts together. Because if somebody has a tenderness for you, if somebody cares about you, if somebody actually likes you they might be willing to just sacrifice then for you. So often we think of the love of the kingdom, of a love that comes through gritted teeth. Uh, I guess I'll sacrifice myself because I don't really like you, but I guess I'll do it because I'm a Christian and so I better do the right thing right now. Super inconsistent with who God is in those places. Think about Jesus on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. (laughs) I think sometimes when I read that passage, it was like Jesus was hanging on the cross and he's been the victim of all of this injustice perpetrated upon him. He has a spear in his side. He has a a crown of thorns in his head. He's been mocked and spit upon and ridiculed and he probably can't stand everybody around him, right? And he's like, oh, shoot, I am the son of God. I do know the biblical text. And so I guess I have to offer forgiveness in this moment, even though I don't like these people at all. (sighs) So Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. There, got it done. Is it possible that Jesus saw the world different than that? Is it possible that in the midst of the injustice perpetrated upon him, without any excuse, the people had to do what they did, Is it possible in the midst of taking on the shame of all of those things and a vehement inclination of the mind for the people who are even killing him, he said, oh dear, they don't know what they do. Well, God forgive them. I would suggest that if I don't know that kind of love, I don't know God. No matter how theologically astute I might be. Pull this together in a definition for love different than our culture. It would sound something maybe like this. An other-centered, self-sacrificing love born of a passionate, affectionate tenderness that seeks the healing and the wholeness of all things and is willing to give it up, all of it up, to make that happen. For God so loved the world. Say it again. God did not send his son into this world to prove something about God's glory as if God is insecure. God did not send his son into this world to somehow be able to do something so he can possibly suffer our presence. God sent his son into this world because he loved the world and desired the wholeness of all things and he could see that we were walking outside of it. There were standards, but the standards are not to prove something about God. The standards were to invite us into the ways of his delight where we actually can have peace in our soul. So the God of the kingdom is love. And that love moves into the dark and the desperate places. It moves into the least and the lost. It moves in towards all of us that have a past that wonder if we can ever be healed. It moves to the woman with five husbands and a sixth man she's living with. It moves towards the adulterer. It moves to the person locked in pornography. It moves to the person wondering about their same gender attractions and it even moves to the person that has embraced their same gender attractions. God loves will continue his love will continue to call towards wholeness all of us. Doesn't mean everything's right. It's because everything is not right that God moves towards us. His love is not embraced, it is not approval, it is not tolerance, it is there is one way in the kingdom I can offer you shalom. Will you bend the arc of your life towards me and I will make you whole? And don't be afraid. For I like you. 
I actually like to be in your presence. I'm not here tolerating you. You ever thought about God being sort of in a good cop, bad cop relationship with Jesus, right? <laughs> it's like God the Father really can't stand us. His wrath is all over the place, just waiting for us. And then Jesus kind of flits across his sight. He's like, oh yeah, I guess I kind of like him. The God of heaven is vehemently inclined towards us to be with us and will give himself fully in order that we would be whole. And that kind of love is patient. And thank God it is kind. And I'm really grateful that it is not self-seeking. Or is it easily angered, 1 Corinthians 13. I don't know how it does it, but it doesn't keep record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil. It'll always rejoice in the truth with us. And somehow into our frailty and brokenness and our inability to love, it will still protect and it will still trust and it will still hope and it will persevere. For love will never fail. It might even just die on a cross that people would be whole and the masquerading version of secularized love of approval knows nothing about that kind of love in our culture. Because I can tolerate without affection. And I can say live and not live without sacrifice. And I can give approval without liking you at all. Love does not happen when someone gets their life together. It happens because we don't have our life together. It's while we are yet sinners that Christ died for us in the midst of that. And if I don't know anything about that, (laughs) I don't know God. And I know all the theology about God. But boy, those people, they said at that time, Lord, Lord, we cried. And what did Jesus say to them? Lord, Lord, we cried. And Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. Because you didn't know what it meant to be with a Samaritan woman in all these social lines and all these social categories. And you didn't know what it meant to be able to be with people in the midst and the muck of their life. So where do you go from here? I don't really know. I think it's incredibly difficult to live out the tension of grace and truth. I think it's really difficult to invite people to wholeness while also being able to look past what is in the present. I don't know all of that. Here's what I do know is that I don't think we can love like that through gritted teeth or just through our own willpower. For the God, for the, uh, the book of John and first John says this, after all of that about you don't know God if you don't know love, he says this, that we love why? Because God first loved us. We are simply the overflow of the beautiful love of God. And so I tell my students who might be Christians and maybe have never loved God and wonder about this whole faith thing and they don't know where to go and they want to try harder again, make a new commitment. It's January. I'm going to follow Jesus much better in 2019 and I'm going to do it. And then we get into January 2nd and we failed miserably. Well, I got next year. all this trying harder stuff, I say, you know, why don't don't you just sit and just ask God to whisper his tender affection across your soul. For God is not primarily theological. God is primarily relational. And when he whispers his love across your soul, here's what I know, is that that kind of love will begin to trickle out of you and it will begin to pour out to other people around you. And you'll know what it means (laughs) to have my breath in you. The song we're going to sing in just a minute that his breath would fill our lungs. For great is our Lord, not because we have to give him glory as if he's insecure, but because he passionately pursues us and doesn't even care about his glory as he moves into the places where nobody else would ever 
go. Like into a place like Samaria, to a woman that nobody would go to, to a woman who had failed miserably her entire life, the breath of God went and said, even you can be restored to wholeness. Thank you for being on the journey the way that you've had, have been, for um, reminding us that the story is not an American story, it's not a political story, it's a story of our king, and for faithfully walking it out in the ways that you have, and being willing to shine a light in this time, in this area, in this place. So in thinking about how to close uh, this morning, all I could think about was Paul's beautiful prayer in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, he says this, for I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray now that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray this for you, that you will be rooted and established in love and may have the power together with all of God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ, a love that somehow surpasses all knowledge and be filled to the measure of the fullness of our God who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, according to the power that's at work within us. And so God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever. Amen.